You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with the Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, it's 844-999-9249, or you can email the show at letstalktorah at gmail.com. So we are getting ready for Passover, and we have an unbelievable story today. We will be joined later by Sergeant Joseph Rafael Salvador, who has an amazing story, his own personal Passover, he was in the Vietnam conflict, he was over in Vietnam, and his Passover story takes place returning from a mission, I guess he'll tell us was successful, not so successful, but his own Passover Seder journey. Um, The book is not written yet, but I did get to see the manuscripts, so we'll have an amazing time with that story. And because we have to understand his story, um, we're going to talk about the order of the Passover Seder and what happens. We got to talk matzah. We got to talk about mar, the bitter herbs. Um, we got to talk about the four cups. Lots of Passover stuff to talk about to get us ready for this fascinating interview from this sergeant and who he is and what he is. He's Jewish. His last name is Salvador. We'll, we'll get into all kinds of stuff about that. Um, but let's first touch upon Passover, because Passover is right on top of us. So the overall story, hopefully we're familiar. If not, here's the overall story we need to know. Um, I guess I just heard the joke the other night. Um, We were slaves, we were freed, so let's eat. I believe that's how they say it. Um, The Jewish people were enslaved to the Egyptians. Um, The hard labor was approximately 86 years, but we were slaves even longer. We're actually in Egypt for 210 years when Joseph comes down and brings the family down. And we were turned into slaves. Um, Moses then goes to the burning bush and... uh, God tells him to take the Jewish people out. Moses goes down to Pharaoh. That will lead to the ten plagues. Um, after the death of the firstborn, the plague of the firstborn, so then Pharaoh allows the Jewish people to leave. We leave. A few days later, the Egyptians chase us. They chase us into the Red Sea. The sea splits for us. It collapses behind them, and they are, that army is wiped out. And then we end up in the desert, and eventually we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. That's the basic overall quick version of what the Passover holiday is about. And the name itself, Passover, comes from the word that God passed over the Jewish houses, meaning by the plague of the firstborn, where all the firstborn Egyptians were killed, for the most part, by God. So the Jewish firstborn was saved. 
Now, God knows where everybody is, so exactly why God has to protect them. So some say angels also were involved in killing people. Again, God could have just protected. What's the idea of Passover? So again, the idea of Passover is it's just like symbolic. He passed over and left the Jews alone, and he killed the Egyptians. It's not a real, it's not like a force field. In other words, if an Egyptian was in a Jewish house or a Jew was in an Egyptian house, the Egyptian was going to die and the Jew was going to live. That, of course, doesn't really matter at all. But that's how we explain that's the name. The name becomes Passover. Interesting enough, we call it Passover. Um, God refers to it as the holiday of eating matzah. Because uh, because we appreciate the matzah, the matzah uh, symbolizes our freedom. Fine. So uh, okay, once we're talking matzah, so matzah for a few minutes. So matzah is unleavened bread, like wafers. Um, we're very careful that the dough doesn't rise. It's made very quickly, with lots of people keeping their eyes on the whole process. And because there's a lot of eyes on the process and a lot of people working. The cost of those boxes of matzah are not cheap. There's machine, there's a make it by hand, there's all kinds of matzah. So the matzah actually symbolizes the, it symbolizes two things. Because the whole night of the Passover seder, seder by the way means order, we are, we are busy working on contradictions of the evening. We remember we're slaves and we also remember we went free. So both things are happening, some simultaneously, some in order, depending if we're telling the story or if things are happening. We'll talk about it soon. But matzah actually serves a dual purpose. First of all, matzah or unleavened bread is cheap bread, at least in those days. You, just, you don't even give it time to rise. Just mix the flour and water, slap it in the oven, take it out, here's your food. So it was food that was served to slaves. It's also referred to as poor man's bread because it's very cheap to make. Now, again, the way we make our matzah, it's quite expensive. But when I, went, when I was in Israel, um, you could, there were certain areas. I remember I was in a Bukhara na- neighborhood. There was this big, like, stone oven, and they were making this dough, and they would slap these big pita breads pretty much on the wall and take them off. It took minutes to make. And for pennies, you could buy yourself a stack of what you would call pita bread, because pita bread is could be very similar and could even be kosher for matzah. Don't I'm not telling you to use it for matzah because nowadays they're not careful when they make it. But there a, there used to be a way to even make a pita type bread um, into unleavened bread because you don't give it the time to rise by the time you bake it. So first of all, it's poor man's bread. It's it's bread that slaves would eat. That's the that's the first symbolic part of the matzah we're eating. But the second symbolic part of the matzah that we're eating is because dough, by Jewish law, if dough would be allowed to sit for 18 minutes, so it would automatically or legally be considered bread. Even if you look at it and it doesn't look like the dough was rising, but 18 minutes of once the water hits the flour and nothing is being done with it, it's considered uh, leavened bread, or chametz is the Hebrew word. And then it's no longer kosher for matzah. So the concept of the 18 minutes, that things, the dough rises so fast, 
um, in such a short period of time is symbolic of how fast we left Egypt. And I was once it was time to leave, we were out of there. And I was, you have the plague of the firstborn. We don't leave that night. Pharaoh's ready to let us go. We don't leave. The next morning, we're ready to leave. So the Torah says how the women were starting to prepare breakfast. Because in those days, you didn't go to the store to buy bread. It was the mother's job that she would grind up the flour and add in the water and put up the fire and start making breakfast. The Egyptians said, if you think after last night's, uh, uh, I don't call it epidemic, uh, last night's plague where you killed all our firstborn, we're letting you stick around, you can forget about it. So the Egyptians threw us out of the country. I mean, just try to imagine when you're packing and you want to get out of the house. Like, okay, I do it every morning for carpool. I'm busy uh, trying to move everybody along at a much faster pace and they're ready to go. No one's ever ready when I'm ready to leave for school. That's just the way life goes. So try to imagine getting millions of people, their stuff packed, don't leave anything behind, get all the animals loaded, let's get to the central city, let's start traveling. Just the idea of having all that happen in a short period of time is mind-boggling, and since it was, for the most part, miraculous, it's all good. So, uh, so again, so the matzah has the ability to symbolize that we were slaves, and the matzah also has the ability to symbolize that we left Egypt in such a fast, quick manner. And therefore, we are remembering what happened and thanking God at the same time. And that's the matzah that we eat throughout the Passover holiday. There's also, it's called the bitter herbs, um, or marar, because again, we suffered as slaves. So the marar is really just a one facet of what it symbolizes. There used to be a sacrifice. The sacrifice was called the Passover sacrifice. So it reminds us that God passed over the houses, he saved all the firstborn, he destroyed the Egyptians, he killed the Egyptians. We don't have a sacrifice nowadays, so we, um, but we symbolize it on what's called the Seder plate. There's a plate, and on the plate there's a bone that symbolizes a Passover sacrifice, there's an egg, there's the bitter herbs, there's salt water, there could be other vegetables, there's something called haroses that we dip the... the um, we dip the mur into, which symbolizes the mortar and bricks. So before my friend comes on, I wanted to take a few minutes to make sure we understand the order of the evening. And when my new friend, the sergeant, comes on and he discusses his personal story, um, we'll all have the order of what happens the night of Passover, the Seder. We'll have a feeling for the order. And that way we'll understand what he's talking about. So, first what we do is we come home, finish prayers, come home, all the kids get ready, family gets ready, they're around the table, and we take a glass of wine. There's actually four cups of wine. The first cup we take and we make what's called Kiddush. Kiddush means holy. We are, we are proclaiming that it is the holiday. Um, it's the, it's a blessing on wine. Whenever we, um, do a mitzvah. We many times like to make a blessing on wine. It's it's symbolic of the importance of that mitzvah. So we start out making what's called kiddush, but we're not going to start the meal for a long time. So after we make the kiddush, the next thing that we do is we go wash our hands. 
but we're not washing our hands for bread. Generally speaking, we wash our hands before we eat bread. Here, it's a second, it's a first washing of our hands, and then we will have a vegetable dipped in salt water. Again, the salt water is symbolic of tears. The vegetable itself um, may, may not be symbolic so much of anything on its own. Some people have potatoes. Some people have maybe celery or carrots. It doesn't matter. It's a vegetable. The Hebrew word happens to be karpas. Now, the word itself is a mnemonic. If you play with the letters, it's symbolic of the 600,000 that were slaves in Egypt. So we have Kaddish is first. Then we wash our hands. That's called Orchatz. Third thing is called Karapas. That's, again, where we dip the vegetable in salt water. Interesting enough, one of the reasons we do it is so that children should become inquisitive, like even though we prepare them in school, so how inquisitive could they be? But younger children seeing unusual things by a meal, um, they ask, like, hello, um, when are we eating? Like, don't we get to eat first, right? On a regular Friday night, you make Kiddush, and then we immediately go wash our hands, and we have bread or challah. I don't see no challah on the table. I see this weird-looking plate with all kinds of stuff on the table. I got this big book in front of me, like, what's going on? And that's really what we want. We want children asking questions throughout the night because the best way to remember anything is through question and answer. If I just give you loads and loads of information, very hard to retain. But if like in school or by a seder, if I if the child asks a question and I give an answer, there's a much better it has a much better chance of sinking in, of being understood. It's, we take more time to discuss it. So that's questions, which we'll get into in a second. That's called carpas. After carpas, we take, there's, by most people, there are three matzahs, three of those unleavened breads. Um, we take the middle one and we break it in half. That's called yachatz. Yachatz means to split, or it's from the word half. Half will be put away for the end of the meal, and half we put back symbolic of um, the slavery in Egypt, and but then we're still in exile. That's symbolic for later. That's called yachatz. That's uh, what people call the afikoman, where either the children will hide the matzah and the father is supposed to look for it. And if he can't find it, he has to give them presents. He has to buy it back from them. Or sometimes the father will hide it and the children have to go look for it. And if they find it, then they get a prize. That's my... My story I always tell over with my grandfather that he hit it and I couldn't find it and I lost a quarter and that, that really traumatized me till this day. That was only a quarter, you understand. And he like he put it like under the tablecloth, like in such an easy place. But like who's looking under tablecloths? I was seven, six, I have no idea. But I'm still traumatized from then. Anyways. We ask the four questions, the children will ask the children will ask the four questions, the father's supposed to answer, and then we begin the story of everything that happened. And again, it's a story, a lot of stuff we already discussed very quickly, of going down to Egypt and being slaves and the and the plagues and the leaving Egypt. So that's the story of the Haggadah, which means to tell over. And then, that's called Magid, by the way. That's the next part of the order. We tell over the story. And then we start to get ready for the meal. We're going to have the second cup of wine. Then we're going to have... Um, we're going to have some matzah, 
we're going to go wash our hands again, we're going to have matzah, we're going to excite it twice, and then we're going to have the maror, the bitter herbs, then we're going to make a sandwich of matzah and maror, and again, we're going to dip into that haroses, into that, uh, it looks like cement, it's made out of apples and cinnamon and wine and a few other uh, choice materials that we find. And then, after all that, now we're ready to sit down and eat. So, whatever people, obviously that's the highlight for most people. Everybody likes the meal, whatever they're served by the meal. Your, your gefilte fish and your chicken soup and your chicken. We keep it simple. I know a lot of people, this brisket is like a big deal. That's the meal, right? So, you have your meal. That's, again, part of the order. Part of the order of the evening is an actual meal. You're supposed to sit down and have a meal. After the meal, we have to then... Thank God for the food we had. That's We call that benching or barech. Um, that's also the time where people open the door and they wait and they fill up the fifth cup. Well, they're technically filling up the fifth cup. We haven't, after benching, we drank the third cup. After we bless, had the blessing after the meal, we have the third cup. We fill up our fourth cup. We also fill up the cup for Elijah. So we open the door. We greet Elijah. Um, everybody tells the kids Elijah's drinking from the cup. Then we have really two more parts to the actual say there. One is called Hallel. Hallel is singing praise to God. In other words, if the first part of the evening we're discussing how we were slaves, the last part of the evening we're discussing, uh, we're thanking God. So we sing praises. Most of them are coming from Psalms, uh, from King David. So we're, we're saying what's called Hallel. And then when that's done, so we have the fourth cup. And then we sing songs. Most of the songs are old, old poetry. Some, again, are songs of thanks. Some are songs about uh, about uh, Passover itself. There's the famous Who Knows One, Who Knows Two, Who Knows Three. There's the famous um, uh, the, the Kid and the Cat Ate the Kid and the Dog Bit the kid, Cat and the Stick Hit the Dog and the Fiber and the Stick. And that gives us a basic... Uh-huh, see, that's my song coming up right now. So that gives us a basic feeling for the order. So when we come back, we're going to be joined by the sergeant, Sergeant Yosef El Salvador. He's going to tell us his Passover story. You're all ready to hear him. So hold through the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's a horror movie. <laughs> Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord. <laughs> I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Yeah. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Can that itch be caused by stress? Now, we already know that stress can increase your odds of everything from colds to cancer. And now there's new research to suggest that stress can also make you itch. You see, it seems clear that stress activity is the immune system of mice making them itch, and the experts say the same is probably true for humans. 
The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Now, these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. Now, more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another Prescription for Your Health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And I know that's not the usual kind of music I play, but I thought our next guest might appreciate appreciate it. We're joined by Sergeant Joseph Rafael Salvador. Yosef, are you there? Yes, sir, I am. Did you at least appreciate the music I played for you? Or you didn't hear it? I couldn't hear it, sorry. When you re-listen to the show, you'll appreciate it. So, Sergeant um, Yosef Rafael Salvador... Um, was in the 7th Airborne Special Forces during the Vietnam conflict, and he has an amazing Passover Seder, which we're going to focus on um, today. But before we get there, um, Yosef, could you give me just a little background about yourself so people know who you are? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a Sephardic. I was born in, and raised in New York City. Uh, my parents left the community when I was young, and I've been a Reformed Jew for many years. And I served in the in the military for at least eighteen years. Okay, there we have it. So, brought up in New York, served in the military for 18 years, moved up in rank. So, we're going to take it slow till we get to the actual story. I want to, I want people to get a flavor of who you were and what happened a little bit. So, when we talked, you told me you enlisted in Vietnam, or for Vietnam, in 1970. Now, my father also was drafted into Vietnam, uh, when many people tried to find ways out. How come you enlisted? I was not too ha- happy with my family situation, and uh, I needed to explore myself, find out who I was and what I really believed in. And so did missed- and did you find? I mean, at the end of the day, did you find out who Sergeant Yosef Rafael Salvador was by the end of your uh, experiences? Yes. Okay, good. That's what we're going to find out exactly. So I do want to ask you, I know you told me originally your family was from Cuba. The name Salvador, it may not be the most Jewish name, but did you experience anti-Semitism when you were in the Army? Uh, They used to make fun of me. Some some of them would say, how can you sell a taco... Bagel, how is it made? <clears throat> and I used to tell them, I don't know what a taco is. 
Okay. Something real. I didn't know. I mean, with a name like Salvador, did they think you were Jewish? No, they thought I was Mexican. So did you allow them to think you were um, Catholic, or you told them straight out, I'm Jewish? No, they knew that I was Jewish by the people that I wore all the time, and because I wouldn't eat pork or some other animals that they would try to get me to eat. Okay, so you, so you wore your Jewishness as a proud badge. Probably one of the many badges you guys got to wear. So you, you, you joined as a private, but you, you clearly, if you got to the 7th Airborne Special Forces, um, you had to move up. Who is or are the 7th Airborne Special Forces, and why did you join them? Uh, at first, I just wanted to be able to say that I did many things because I'm only 5'2 in height. I'm not a tall gentleman, and uh, I just wanted to prove that I could do what many others could do, and I did my best, and I did make it all the way. So, so even at five two, you're a little guy, but uh, yeah. you created some big, some big footprints. That is for sure, and that's what we want to discuss. So. <clears throat> I told everybody earlier, you sent me, we'll call them your manuscripts, where you discuss your Passover Seder in mm. Vietnam. So I'm going to try to work you through it because I have an order that I want to I wanna get through. And if I miss anything, go right ahead and keep talking. <laughs> I, I'll do my best not to stop you. Aaron, I'm sorry you're coughing. But um, so, again, I know I can't ask you the exact mission, but... My my understanding was you wanted to celebrate the Passover Seder, I guess, on the base or wherever you guys, with the chaplain. That's what you were looking to do, but uh, you weren't able to have your Passover Seder on the base. What happened? A day before the community uh, Passover Seder was, uh, was to happen, we had got some uh, orders. To go on a mission, and uh, I couldn't refuse because I wasn't sick, I wasn't injured, and they needed every able person to go on that mission that was qualified. So I had to go. Okay, so just curious again, I know you can't give me too many details. How many people go on a mission? That all depends on what the objective of the mission is and uh, what units they want to send. Well, let's say this mission, this special mission that you went uh, for Passover, how many guys were on that mission? Basically a company. Okay, I'm not going to show you how uh, uninformed I am. How many soldiers are in a company? I'm being laughed at. I should know these things, but I do not. How many soldiers are in a company? Uh, when I was in the service, a company was basically two platoons of 11 men apiece. 
Okay, got it. So we're talking 22 guys go out on a mission. And again, we're not discussing what happened on the mission. But uh, the mission did not go, um, I guess, as well as everybody would have happened. Um, I think you said you, the, they accomplished the mission. But on the way back, when you guys are heading back to wherever you're supposed to head back to, what happened? Things got a little bit uh, worse than we thought they would ever be. And we had to be at a certain place at a certain time in order to get evacuated. And we were trying our best to get back there and try to take our dead with us, which was kind of hard besides the wounded that were with us. And it was a fight for our lives to get there. So when you were heading back, according to the manuscripts you sent me, that's when you created your own... Passover Seder. So let's start from the beginning. You realized that it was time. I mean, you said the Seder took a few days because it was a few days for you guys to get back. But everybody knows the first part of the Seder is, we explained the first part of the show, is having a cup of wine. It's not like you had wine with you. What did you do for the first part of the Seder? I had to improvise by drinking water. Because that was the only thing available to us at that time. So what happened? So you took that. You took your canteen, and what did you say to God, what, or to yourself? What did you say? Uh, I went through a little booklet that I had that they had given us at our base for a post, and uh, I went through the steps as much as I could when I had a chance to. I I just went through the whole ceremony according to the little pamphlet that I had with me. So while you're carrying soldiers, you have time to look through the pamphlet? I already knew some of the sets, so I was just trying to keep them in order because my mind was not a hundred percent on what I should be doing for the state I felt. Okay, good. And uh, so go ahead. Okay, so you start out with with what we'll call kiddish. You had a a cup of water because obviously they're not supplying you with with wine. And um, you know, it's interesting. The whole say that we talk about freedom. And uh, we're talking about freedom from leaving Egypt. But you were thinking about your own freedom as you were traveling. What were you thinking about? I was just hoping that my comrades and myself could make it back to to the space line. And uh, many things came through my mind about the Seda and a lot of the things that were happening to our people as we left Egypt. And, uh... For example. Now, Yosa, by the way, if you could talk a little closer into the phone, you might be on a speaker. They're telling me they're not hearing you as clear as they would like. I hear you, but it's they want it clearer. So if you could talk closer to the phone, that would be great. But let's back up. So what 
What were you thinking? Give me some examples of things you're thinking as you're traveling. I was just trying to uh, maintain my sanity, trying to maintain what was happening around us, and at the same time, wanting to go home to Jerusalem and be able to celebrate along with my my grandfathers at their house, at their table, and just be able to enjoy my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, and enjoy the whole family as we celebrated. Joseph, one second. If you could hold that thought, we need to go on a quick break for about two minutes. If you could hold through the break, okay. we'll continue right after the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on New Radio Media, joined by Sergeant Yosef Rafal Salvador, and we'll be right back. I'll tell you what happened. Good morning. I got the We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Plus, the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Surfing the internet can be good for your brain, especially if you're getting up there in years. UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. Yasef, are you still there? Yes, sir, I am. Excellent. So, you know, you started to say something which was which is almost a focal point and I think a very important point in your manuscript. And you talk about your grandfather throughout the story. As you're trying to get back to the evac point with the wounded, with the dead, those who can still make it, you keep talking about how you heard your grandfather's voice in your head. What were you hearing from your grandfather? I was hearing him sing. I was hearing them share the 
theta teachings, I could hear them in my head out of memory. It was a place that I felt safe at, even though physically I was not safe. I did feel safe because of of the memories that they had given to me. And I just did the best that I could and continued. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, it's, so when you were younger, or maybe even right before you went to Vietnam, you always went to the Seder by these grandparents? Yes. I always got permitted to go to uh, my grandparents because my parents, uh, especially my father, had uh, wanted to become part of the melting part of New York City. And he wanted to walk away from the community and not be a religious Jew as so many of our other relatives. So I was permitted every once in a while to go with my grandparents, both sets. Wow, that's amazing. I I mean, it's amazing that you had to get permission, but it's beautiful that they gave you permission because really one of the important focal points of the whole Seder is parents or grandparents giving over the story to their children. And even though we heard the story last year and the story the year before and the year before that, but but look at yourself. Because you heard the story all those years when you were younger, when you needed to hear the story and when you needed to know all the things that happened by the Passover Seder, there was your grandfather's voice in your head while you're in a horrific area trying to save your save the wounded, get the dead out. It's really just the the whole story, the whole picture is beautiful. I'm just like, I'm blown away. I hope you also are blown away, but it's a great story. Um, so here we go. So you talk about, so Karpas is part of the Seder. We dip the vegetable into the salt water. Where was your salt water? We used to have, at that time, we used to have what they called sea rations. And with some of the sea rations, you also would get a little packet of uh, salt or pepper or both of them together. And uh, that's where I got my salt water from. Oh, you know, I've... And the the green was nothing more than, don't laugh, but grass. Because that's all I had. Now, now that I'm not laughing, I'm going to remind you what you wrote in the manuscript. Because I thought you said in the manuscript <laughs> that your that your that your salt water was your own personal tears mixing with the grass. Did I read that wrong? No, that was just a metaphor. But yes, didn't read it wrong. Okay, good. So moving along. So uh, you need now we break the middle matzah. Where did where did you break the middle matzah? Where did that come from? In the K rations that they used to give us, there used to be a can of saltine crackers. I know it's not matzah. I'm never saying that it will ever take the place of the matzah, but when you don't have 
matzah or anything else. That's the closest that I could get and what I had at the time. Many of the things are not what many others would say, oh, it's supposed to be kosher, it's supposed to be this, it's supposed to be that. I used whatever Hashem had given to me at that particular moment. Right, which is and the... I hope nobody gets offended. No, no one can get offended because I'm in charge. And since I'm in charge of my show and I'm not offended, no one else is allowed to be offended. But, uh, no, because as I'm reading the manuscript, and we're hoping that it will be printed one day and published, and then we can tell people to go pick it up. But right now it hasn't been published yet. You, as you, as, as people will read the story, they're going to, or listen to our story, they're going to see as you moved along over those couple days, um, whatever came up next in the Seder, all of a sudden it was just put into your hand. For example, um, I think I read over there that uh, your friend Jones gave you not a whole bread, but like a piece of bread. Because by yachatz, we have part of the matzah. Did I get that part yeah. right? Yes, sir. Cool. So so you said there were soldiers that you were taking care of that were asking you questions. I don't remember if you said what kinds of questions, but how did that relate to the actual Haggadah and the Seder? It, it basically took care of, it was part of the four questions by the children. And they asked me, maybe not the same exact questions, but they asked questions like, why, can, why does God permit this to happen when we should be the good guys, and we should be winning. And, and, and what did you tell them? I told them that Hashem had things already worked out for us. That no matter what, He never stopped loving us. Because I didn't even know the answers because I was myself searching for a deeper understanding of my God. And did and you find some of that understanding out there on the battlefield? Yeah, because I remember telling myself, I'm here because of my own fault, not because God permitted or made me come here. Is because of my own decisions that might not have been what God wanted for me. But now that I was here, I had to do my best to give back so I could do what God wanted me to do. And I believe during the whole process of learning, of the deep learning, that God taught me many other things that I needed to know. Amazing. So, as we're getting towards the end of the Seder, you needed murrah. What'd you do for, well, you could have had grass, I guess, but uh, what'd you use for murrah, for your bitter herbs? Uh, the bitter herbs, that was something that you could dig up in the ground in, um, in Vietnam, sorry. Uh, there were many 
bitter herbs and um, besides a bar, uh, the bark from the trees. I used what I what I could get, and uh, everything around me besides my own tears and the tears of my wounded companions and dead companions were bitter enough. Okay, so as we get towards the end of the story, I know I'm jumping ahead, but my time is running out. So you yeah. got to the evac point, but at the evac point, you still, you guys had to get off the ground. You were being attacked. What do you, because I know you don't know everything happened. What happened at the evac point that you remember? I believe, as far as I can remember, I know I was pre-wounded again, and I lost consciousness. And I was told later on at the hospital, a ship called Hope out in the China Sea that uh, I kind of like stood up and started firing to make sure that everybody else got put into the helicopter before they grabbed me and shoved me up into the helicopter itself. I don't remember. So that's what I was told at that time. I don't know if I did or if I didn't, but I'm still alive today. With an amazing story and memory and a belief in God that a lot of people should have like you. I'm getting towards the end of my uh, of my time, and I appreciate, Yosef, I know it's a hard story for you to tell, and I appreciate you telling you over the story because you lost a lot of good buddies, but um, with one minute, is there anything else either I missed in the story or after the story, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Yes, just to thank Hashem every day that you're alive and that you're, you are where you're at and that's where you're needed. Don't go outside of your backyard if you don't have to. Because sometimes it can be deadly. And on that happy note, as we're all getting ready to celebrate for Passover, so, so Yosef, uh, Sergeant Yosef Rafal Salvador, I appreciate your time. We, of course, appreciate um, the service to your country. Um, I hope a lot of people appreciate your story of faith, um, your memory of your grandparents, and I hope you share those memories of your grandparents with your own children, eventually with your own grandchildren. Thank you so much for coming on, and have a happy, healthy, kosher Passover. Thank you, and thank you, Ravi. Okay. Sergeant, be well. It was good to schmooze. I appreciate it. Okay. Whoa, that is a just an amazing story. I mean, again, what do I know? You think I know a battlefield? You think I know what it's like to be out there with a gun in my hands? Absolutely not. And yeah, I could be one of those guys saying, well, that's not matzah and that's not moror and that's not a real seder. But then you miss the whole point of what he was trying to accomplish. He remembered the story from his grandparents and that's how he survived. Yeah, When the book comes out, we'll tell you about the book. But he is surviving, dragging the wounded 
I'm not sure what they did with the dead. I don't know if they were able to carry them, if they took the dog tags. It's not, I'm not so clear in the manuscripts. It's not clear how, what they did with the bodies. Not so clear to me. Um, I'm sure he could tell me better. But uh, he's living the Seder. He's living going out of Egypt. He's living the story that his grandparents put into his mind. And that tells you the importance of a Seder and of parents and grandparents when we teach our children things and we repeat it and the next year repeat it again. These things are important. They go into the kids' bones. It's so, so important. And here comes my music. I hope you enjoyed that story. We got a few minutes left in the next break to wrap things up. So you're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah. And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Podquesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on NewRadioMedia.com, Fridays, Podquesters. See you there. At times we see a guy running down to first base, and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. umped. I mean, that's the... <laughs> get umped. <laughs> can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. Yep, what's up? This is your boy, Walter Jones, also known as Zach, the original Black Ranger, and you are geeking out with Geek Taming Weekly at New Radio Media. It's worth the time. The BG song, Staying Alive, just might help someone you know stay alive. It's one of those beats you just can't get out of your head once it's there, and it turns out the disco song has 103 beats per minute which happens to be the perfect number to maintain the rhythm for performing CPR. A study out of Illinois found that doctors and medical students who listened to the song while they were practicing CPR not only performed flawlessly, but they also remembered the technique five weeks later. The keys to CPR are performing the technique aggressively, that is pushing hard enough and pushing on the chest fast enough to force the blood to where it needs to go. So when it comes to proper technique, it turns out that compressing the chest to the beat of staying alive really can help the victim stay alive. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And again, I hope you enjoyed that story, that life story of the of Sergeant Salvador. Um, again, I I have the manuscript, and hopefully that book will be printed. As a shout out to a friend, um, Rachel Beck, who's been on our show a couple times, she connected me with the, with the sergeant. She knew his story. I think they're using the same publisher. And she also connected me to another friend of hers, and he'll be on next week. That's the plan. That'll be um, Alan Goldsmith, who, again, has a fascinating just life of what a, a, an individual can accomplish. And, but that's all good stuff for next week. We'll worry about that later. But if Kelsey's ready, I have my poster right behind me. So we're up to the letter Shin or Sin 
It's uh, it's without any dots on top. It could be either one. One makes an sh, a shin, a sh sound. The one makes an s sound. The letter can accomplish both. It has those uh, three fingers, I guess, sticking up with a base on the bottom. It is the second to last letter of our olive base, so we're getting close to starting up all over again. Its numerical value is 300. So again, the numbers, it becomes interesting, right? We we do 1 through 10, and then 10 by 10 is through 100, and then all of a sudden it's 200, 300, 400, and then really that's it. There are other ways people use the uh, numerical values, they play around with stuff, but that's basically the last number be 400. So what letter was I, what word was I thinking for our word of the week? So for our word of the week, I have the word shame. Shame means name, a person's name. So I thought it fit pretty good with our sergeant. I guess that an S would be sergeant, but that's not a Hebrew word. But a a a shame is a name is that's what we at the end of the day that's all we're left with, right? What's what's your name? Do you have a good name? Do you have a bad name? When a person is no longer in this world. What name did he leave behind? He was charitable. He wasn't charitable. Um, what did you do with your life? In other words, the, the money ain't going with you. The house not going with you. The car, the motorcycle's not going with you. So all you have is your name. As an interesting side point, if you think about it, Noah has three sons. One of his sons is Shame. And as he gave his kid a name that means name, which is, I guess, kind of interesting to think about. And the Jewish people come from Shame which is where you get the idea of Semites, and hence the title anti-Semite, because it's, it's coming, it's the anti-those coming from that child of Noah. Noah has three sons. Um, you have Shem, Ham, and Yafes. Yafes is probably more China, Iran, Iraq, that area of the world. Um, um, Chum is probably more the African, Egyptian, Middle Eastern part, probably. And then uh, and then Shem is, the I guess, is also part of the Middle East, the Jewish people, the Arabs, that area, maybe maybe Europe. That's debatable. <clears throat> okay, anyways, so much for my post, my word of the week. It's very beautiful. I saw a great story this week. So um, the story is told with Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was one of the Torah giants of the last generation. Um, he passed away in 1986, I believe. I was, I was in Israel at the time. So a son of his had opened up a, a Torah school, a, a, a school, I believe, in Long Island. I could be wrong. So, of course, he wants his father. You know, it's an established school. So his father, he would bring his father, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, to walk through the school. And the children would come out, and he would smile, and he would shake their hands, and he would talk to them. So he's getting a tour through the whole building. And um, he goes to the kindergarten classroom. Now, let's back up a little bit. On, in a Jewish home, on the doorpost, on the bottom of the top third. So if you cut your door in three parts, so the, the bottom third of the doorpost will be a box, and in that box is a scroll. In that scroll is actually written the Shema. The first paragraph of Shema and the second paragraph of Shema are written in the parchment. It's rolled up, it's put in the box, and it is called a mezuzah. That's what it's called. It's called a mezuzah. So um, he noticed on the kindergarten door that instead of the mezuzah being on the top of the door, where little children can't reach, obviously, um, the mezuzah was all the way down, like in the middle or the top of the bottom third. And the teacher says, oh, Rabbi Kamenetsky, 
the children can't reach that high. So we lowered the mezuzah so they can walk by and give it a kiss. So Rabbi Kamenetsky, in the nicest way, in his infinite wisdom, said, we should not bring the mitzvah down, but we should raise the children up. Put the mezuzah where it belongs and put the child on a stool. Let them stand on a chair if you want them to kiss the mezuzah because it's important that we teach our children the mitzvahs, the commands of God are exactly what they're supposed to be. We are not lowering the, the commands so that it's easier for the children. What we want is to raise our children up. And now with the Passover holiday, a holiday that's really massively focused on children. Look, the whole say there, the four questions that children ask the questions. And some people actually eat out nuts and candy. And we do unusual things so the children should ask. The children are a focal point. Really, it really goes back to the whole story I wanted you to hear from the sergeant. And that was he is remembering the, the Seder from his grandparents. That's what it's all about. We teach our children, the story. It is not our job to water it down. It is not our job to lower it to the level of our children. It is our job to bring our children up to that great level. And that's what the sergeant's uh, grandparents were really good at because he really had the feeling for the whole story. And I see my time is just about up. So, as always, I got to thank all our wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I couldn't do without you. Thank you, my wonderful team. Big team today. Tony, Kelsey, Zach, Angel, and Alana. I hope I left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobs, and you've been listening to Let's Talk to our new radio media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.